From Boise, Idaho, and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. Big day in the Supreme Court on Friday morning. We were both listening in. This is something we've been kind of waiting for. You know, you know concerts are, are on hold. Nobody gets to go to those. So you look for things like a Supreme Court hearing um, for uh, the sherry of our lawsuit. And, and it was really interesting stuff. Uh, we'll, we'll break it down here. Yeah, it was. Um, I, that's a funny way to introduce it. But yeah, it was the big show. And this was an issue that started during the legislative session. It is all about, well, I mean, on the one hand, it's all about personnel and funding. Uh, but it's become a political question. It's become a constitutional question. Uh, there's the backdrop of budget cuts and the coronavirus pandemic. And oh, yeah, this is playing out. But I thought one of the fun things looking forward to this was going to be what kind of things do the justices ask about? And I don't think we were disappointed there today at all. No, no. The, the legal arguments in a nutshell were more or less what we've written about here for the past month. You, you had uh, David Leroy representing uh, State Superintendent Sherry Ibarra arguing that Ibarra is a constitutional officer. She has unique powers vested in her office going back to the territorial constitution uh, and that stripping 18 positions from her department and stripping away $2.7 million from her budget would quote unquote destroy her department. It would it would undercut so many of the day-to-day functions of that department that you can't just carve those positions out without having a devastating effect on her operations and an unconstitutional effect on her operations. So that was uh, David Leroy's basic argument you know, more or less where we expected him to be. Uh, the attorneys for the legislature and for the State Board of Education, uh, their arguments were more or less what we expected as well, saying that uh, the legislature does have the ability to to make these decisions, that they have the ability to transfer uh, dollars and positions. And they argued that uh, the current constitution, the constitution that was crafted during the convention in 1889, makes a conscious shift. It moves the the power of uh, setting education policy away from the superintendent and into the hands of a board that includes the superintendent. So, yeah, they were talking about uh, at one point, you know, would several heads be able to make a better decision than one? Uh, right. and, and that was uh, a, a line of questioning there. Super interesting stuff, like you said. Um, and just like the backdrop was interesting as well because of the pandemic, this was conducted remotely. Uh, it was streamed. It was, um, we were able to see the five justices uh, on the Zoom meeting on the stream. And then we were able to see David Leroy, the special deputy attorney general representing Superintendent Ibarra, who was there, who was sitting behind him in the office on their screen. It looked like Marilyn Whitney as well from the State Department was there. And then you had the attorneys representing both the legislature and uh, the State Board of Education and Matt Freeman there. So that in itself was kind of interesting. Yeah, it was kind of a little bit of, you know, you know, man behind the curtain thing, because, uh, you know, Matt Freeman was there with uh, the State Board's attorney. I don't think we ever really got a glimpse of him uh, via Zoom. Uh, House Speaker Scott Bedke was uh, was uh, with the legislature's legal team, but you never really saw him on on camera, you know. Obviously, a lot of uh, a lot of 
you know, important people watching this case very closely. So no surprise that, uh, you know, you know, Superintendent Ibarra, Speaker Becky, uh, Matt Freeman, among others, uh, were, were there as part of the Zoom call. And really, who knows how many people were watching it uh, over uh, Idaho in session, over uh, public television's website, which was how we were tuned in. Yeah. And the latest is, you know, this just happened this morning. So very much a late breaking story. The Supreme Court didn't, as expected, did not issue any orders or rulings today. Oral arguments have concluded and the matter is under advisement. Uh, but you wrote the lead story today. The justices really asked hard questions of both sides. They were basically grilling uh, the attorneys on the case during oral arguments this morning. Yeah. I mean, what I was kind of listening for, and I think, and I know you were listening for as well, is what sort of tip-off do we get from the justices about where they might be coming down on this issue? And you know, when it came down to the, the the lawsuit, the basic legal arguments, the constitutional arguments, the justices had pretty sharp questions for all of the attorneys. I mean, they came after uh, David Leroy. They asked him, well, why are you suing the State Board of Education? I mean, they're carrying out what the legislature did. Why are they a party to this lawsuit? Why are you suing the legislature? Why, why are they a party to this lawsuit? Um, you know, when after, uh, you know, the, uh, the state board's attorney about, are you just quite saying that this is a political matter, that this isn't a constitutional matter? Um, you know, went after the legislature's attorney about, you know, you know are, you, are you saying that the legislature has the power to, to dismantle uh, the State Department of Education? So I really thought, not- yeah, I thought that that was one of the most interesting segments of all of the oral arguments. And I have a clip that I want to play uh, in here in just a second of Justice Roger Burdick asking that question and, and maybe perhaps getting a little frustrated because it had been asked a couple of times by this point. Um, but yeah, it was the question of whether could the legislature just chip away at, this, at the office of the superintendent of public instruction to the point where there is nothing left. And if uh, let's just listen for about 20 seconds. Sure. Uh, this is Justice Roger Burdick speaking right now. Ms. York, you still haven't answered my question. You still haven't answered Justice Brody's question. Can the legislature basically gut the Department of Education by statute uh, if we allow this to happen and have basically a superintendent of public instruction who gets a free lunch at the state board education meetings or at the governor's cabinet? Can they or can they not? I would say, Your Honors, and I, my apologies if I didn't answer your questions, but they cannot. She is a constitutional okay. officer. Okay, and, and why can't they then, Madam? So as you can tell, like that just is a flavor of, of the arguments today, but it, it was interesting, a little bit of emotion there, um, and, and some pointed questions for sure. That, that struck me, yeah. though, as one of the most... Um, interesting aspects of the oral arguments that we listened to this morning. Yeah, that was a, a big moment in the hearing today. And I think what what sort of to, to set the stage a little bit and maybe to kind of you know, flesh it out a little bit more. Uh, Mary York, who was one of the three attorneys uh, representing the, the legislature, in essence, what she argued was that the state superintendent's powers and authorities are somewhat limited and limited largely to the extent that she is a member of the state board as elected executive uh, 
official, she has a guaranteed seat on the State Board of Education. So her role in setting education policy is no more and no less than uh, having one voice and one vote on the State Board of Education. But as you heard, you know, Justice Burdick asked this question and uh, Justice uh, Robin Brody was asking the same question. You know, what, what can the legislature do at this point? How much uh, can the legislature just whittle away at the State uh, Department of Education? I mean, does the Department of Education uh, have, you know, such limited powers that basically the superintendent is, is you know, somebody who, you know, shows up at state board meetings, gets a lunch, and, and that's about the extent of it. Yeah. So I think that's the hole that uh, both Burdick and Brody were trying to punch in the, the legislature's argument is that, well, you know, if the superintendent has limited powers, how can you argue that the legislature doesn't have unlimited power to, to gut the department? So I thought that was an interesting uh yeah, I thought that was an interesting part of the hearing, for sure. It, it really was. And it all goes back to the role of the legislature and the role of the different branches of government. Obviously, they talked today about how the state board and the superintendent are part of the executive branch of government. Well, the legislature is the legislative branch of government. So it is fascinating to see these legal questions play out and to see this argument. And it's not a new argument. I, I've, we've talked about before on this podcast and we've covered before at Idaho Education News, the bumping of the heads over the years between different members of the state board and different superintendents of public instruction. Um, and so it's, it, it is fascinating in that regard. If you follow politics and policy, which hopefully you do if you're listening to the Extra Credit Podcast, it's, it really was interesting. And I'm really curious about what happens next in any rulings, because from where I sit, the justices did not telegraph it. They asked hard questions on both sides and maybe even introduced a third possibility that I wasn't anticipating before today. Yeah. I mean, in, in essence, it sounds like the Supreme Court has three options uh, that it could look at. And we expect a ruling, by the way, from the Supreme Court fairly quickly. Uh, there was no announcement to that end. Uh, Chief Justice Burdick uh, closed the hearing saying that the matter is under advisement and left it open-ended. But let's face it, this goes into effect on July 1st. These yeah. positions, these dollars shift from the State Department of Education to the State Board on July 1st, if nothing happens. So I think the the fact that the Supreme Court has moved this uh, so quickly and has kind of fast-tracked the hearing suggests that the, the court knows that it needs to act and, and act fairly quickly, so it could come any time. Yeah, I think there could be, you know, a ruling or an, or an order or some more resolution this month for sure. We had talked a couple of minutes ago about the difficult, the tough questions that Justice Burdick and Justice Brody asked. I want to go back to Justice Mueller, who was asking David Leroy some hard questions about the role of the legislature and sort of looking at this argument of isn't, you know, isn't this what the legislature does normally every, every year? Isn't this what the legislature does? And so uh, let's just take another 20 seconds if we can. And the introduction here is this is Justice Mueller and he's talking to David Leroy, who's the attorney for Superintendent Ybarra. Let's listen. 
Council, it seems like you're asking us to make a decision then that the framers of our Idaho Constitution intentionally decided not to make 130 years ago. They left it to the legislature to define these duties. Why should we not just defer to them and their thinking that the legislature was best to make this decision and not the judicial branch? So that was Justice Mueller there. Uh, and it was interesting. We heard tough questions, I think, from four of the five justices. I don't really recall uh, hearing Justice Bevan speak or ask any questions, but yeah, you're right. four right. of the five justices were got in there and, and really mixed it up, and it was interesting. Right. And you know, as far as, you know, like we say, I don't think they've really telegraphed where they could be going. And if anything, they telegraphed that they have uh, – Three different options on the table. So let's break that down a little yeah. bit. Um, Supreme Court could side with uh, Superintendent Ibarra. Uh, could say that this was an unconstitutional uh, act by the legislature. Move all the positions and all the dollars back to the State Department of Education. Could be They could hand Ibarra and David Leroy a, a clearer victory. They could also do the same for the legislature and the state board. They could say that this was a constitutional act, uphold the law, allow the transfer to go uh, as planned. What we heard today that was new was an option that, uh, you know, we didn't realize and had no way of realizing that the uh, Supreme Court was uh, going to entertain. The idea of putting the issue on hold, granting a stay, leaving uh, the status quo in place while this case works its way through district court. Uh, that uh, option kind of got floated during the course of the hearing. So, you know, those are three possibilities uh, you know, going forward. Yeah, and I, I don't know which way uh, that it is going to go, but I think Justice Burdick and another justice mentioned a couple of different times the possibility to put a stay in place to block the transfer July 1st and to let a lower court sort of, you know, suss out some of these factual issues, sort out some of these issues um, involving the case. So we'll stay tuned and see. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's three options that we'll be looking at for for where it could go. Did anything else, I, I know you've been covering it and I know you were on the radio today talking about it. What else jumped out at you uh, about today's, you know, more or less historic case? I think there was one area of clarity uh, on one of the, the, the minor, the lesser motions in this case, which is um, some of the uh, supporting documents that uh, David Leroy has filed. And you know, some of the supporting documents are pretty interesting. I wrote a whole story about them last week. The uh, the uh, accounts from uh, Ibarra and her legislative assistant, Marilyn Whitney, about this, uh, this almost a campaign, if you will, uh, legislators looking to defund the Department of Education or, you know, basically dismantle the State Department of Education, turn the position into an appointed job as opposed to an elected job. Um, there was a motion on the table to strike those documents, uh, strike also some uh, a document in support of Ibarra from uh, Russ Chokey, the former NAMPA superintendent, former West Ada uh, trustee. But the, the interesting stuff to me, uh, probably more interesting, was uh, the motion to, to strike these, uh, this chronology uh, that uh, Superintendent Ibarra and Marilyn Whitney filed, you know, trying to lay out this uh, now, this lay out the case that legislators are out to eliminate the department or neutralize the department. No questions asked of the legislature's attorney, uh, but 
several questions posed to, to David Leroy about, the, uh, about these documents, about the relevance of these documents, uh, why does this really matter, and what Leroy said repeatedly was that this gives you a, a sense of the superintendent's state of mind, her concerns about the future of the department, the fate of the department, uh, what the legislature really wants to do with the department. Uh, he said, and he has said this in writing in, in his own motions, that the, these weren't submitted to provide a factual account of uh, what's going on at the legislature, what was going on at the legislature, but instead to introduce uh, state of mind, uh, to which uh, one of the justices asked, well... Who so cares? <laughs> so the truth doesn't really matter. Right. Yeah, he said, what, what does it matter what her state of mind was? Uh, I thought that was interesting, and that was... Right. That was the one of the first they they discussed that motion. That was one of the first things they discussed today, before right. getting into overall or, oral arguments. And then, and, and, like right. you said, and, after that first five minutes, it never came up again. Really, right? The, the state of mind issue came up with the question of truth. Uh, Justice Mueller said, "So it doesn't matter if it's true or not <laughs> what you submitted uh, as an exhibit to the Supreme Court." So, you know, it's it's dangerous to read too much into what the justices are thinking, but based on the questioning, I did not sense that they were terribly impressed by those documents. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think they kind of tipped their hand maybe a little bit on that, so we'll see how that plays out. But that does not necessarily give you any indication of how they're going to act on the, the larger issue of uh, whether the, the transfer of the positions and the transfer of the dollars, whether that's constitutional. That's still the big question before the, the Supreme Court, and we'll watch closely because we expect some sort of closure in the not too distant future. Yeah, certainly in you know this month and the weeks ahead, uh, less than four weeks out from that uh, July first transfer. So I do expect some sort of action. We will continue uh, to follow it. You had a good piece up at the homepage today: www.idahoednews. ORG talking about the justices grilling the attorneys in the case. So if you want to get caught up a little bit more, the homepage would be a good place to head. And because it's 2020, you have a picture of the Zoom meeting as it's going on, because every meeting is a Zoom meeting now. But yeah, so we'll have full coverage and we'll be watching it closely because we uh, anticipate some sort of answer uh, really anytime. Yeah, and we really... Um, to shift gears here, you really were on double duty this week because it was not just the... Uh, significant Supreme Court case that you were watching. There was also a historic absentee-only primary election in Idaho that we got results from finally this week, late Tuesday into Wednesday, correct? Yeah, uh, really some important elections uh, with regard to education and um, hit some of the highlights here really significant results in some school districts uh, that were seeking levies and bond issues. Uh, West Ada, largest district in the state, had the largest uh, ballot measure uh, on Tuesday, $28 million two-year supplemental levy, which failed. And that leaves West Ada in some fairly significant financial straits. Uh, the supplemental levy alone makes up about 5% of the district's budget. Um, like every district in the state, uh, West Ada is anticipating budget cuts at the state level, uh, potentially 5% budget holdback. So 
on election night, uh, Steve Smiley, trustee from West Ada, was on his Facebook page saying we're looking at a 10% cut, and I, you know, I, I'm sick, and I don't know how we're gonna gonna handle that. So we're gonna watch and try to get some answers in the in the days to come about what West Ada does next. But it comes at a really difficult time for West Ada because, like every district in the state, they're in the middle of uh, setting a budget for the next year. Uh, West Ada is really just kind of beginning the contract negotiations process. They wanted to get more closure uh, about the state funding picture before going to the bargaining table. Well, now you've got this $14 million hole in next year's budget because uh, of the failure of, of this uh, supplemental levy. They weren't alone. Uh, Middleton had a uh, supplemental levy fail. Tough week for Middleton. I mean, you yeah. know, superintendent resigns abruptly. Uh, turmoil continues at the top in Middleton. Our Sammy Edge, just really quickly, our our, our reporter Sammy Edge uh, had a report this week about the resignation of uh, Middleton superintendent and their board meeting. Uh, so that's at the homepage, www.idahoednews.org, if you want to check that issue out. But like you said, tough week in Middleton, uh, also at the ballot box. Yeah. A failed uh, levy there, a failed levy in uh, Mountain View District in North Central Idaho, which has also had a revolving door of management. A couple of bond issues failed, a plant facilities levy failed in Swan Valley. So 15 districts had ballot measures, six of them failed. That's a pretty significant uh, ratio. And, you know, like I say, West Ada, West Ada was the one that really surprised me because um, this has been a levy that's been on the books for several years. Uh, two years ago, it passed with 68% uh, support. But one thing I want to talk about, and this kind of segues into the, the other aspect of this election, there was big turnout on Tuesday, surprisingly big turnout, yeah. all vote-by-mail primary. Uh, and it really played a role in West Data. So in 2018, when this levy passed, it was March, so it was a standalone ballot. There was nothing else... Uh, before voters, it was, you know, your your March school election, about 15,000 people voted in that levy election. And there was a bond issue on the ballot as well, by the way. So they had two reasons to go to the polls, but 15,000 people voted on that supplemental levy in 2018. For this election, 46,000 voters, uh, you know, cast votes in the West Data supplemental levy, a, a tripling of voter turnout. And in a community like West Data, politically conservative, definitely runs red, a big turnout in a primary election is going to skew to the right. I, I, that's, it's impossible to in, interpret this election result without looking at turnout and the effect of turnout. Also impossible to overlook the economics right now. I yeah. mean, we're in a recession. And that's affecting even West Data, which has been a boom town. Uh, a booming district with a lot of commercial growth, a lot of residential growth. You know, you know, times are changing in West Ada as well as uh, every place in Idaho. So that definitely factored in, but uh, really a surprising result. And it'll, it'll be interesting to watch and see how West Ada uh, moves forward after, uh, after this failed levy. Yeah, you've got the rundown over at www.idahoednews.org. And you did, and it was cool that you tracked all the bonds and levies and tracked the trend. But it wasn't just bonds and levies that we got results on Tuesday, right? We got some really interesting, really significant uh, legislative uh, primary results. 
to hit some of the highlights, you had four uh, House incumbents lose on, on Tuesday. Um, two who have a pretty, uh, pretty direct role in education policy, uh, Gerald Raymond, uh, Manan, Republican, who sat on the House Education Committee, he lost in his primary. Britt Raybould, uh, first-term legislator who sat on the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee, she lost in her primary. Maybe more significantly is who they lost to. Yeah. Uh, Raymond lost to uh, Carrie Hanks, who's a former legislator from St. Anthony. Raybould lost to Ron Nate, another former legislator from Rexburg. Both Hanks and Nate are closely aligned with the Idaho Freedom Foundation. Um, we were watching for this. We were watching to see kind of how that open battle between mainstream Republicans and hardline Republicans would play out in this primary. You know, it's an ongoing struggle uh, kind of for the, the heart and soul and direction of the Republican Party. There is no way to, to couch it but the, the House uh, positions to be more conservative in 2021. Yeah, I think the, the flip of these four legislative seats, when you put it all together, yes, Brian Zollinger, a hardline conservative, lost, but I, I can't look at the numbers any other way. You can't look at the, the shuffle any other way but that uh hardline republicans hardline you know ultra right-wing republicans gained ground in the house yeah so you had it between hardliners and more mainstream republicans it's even more tenuous maybe than ever depending on what happens in the fall obviously right. things can change in the fall election but positioning to be a more conservative uh, republican caucus in, in the house yeah, and often in Idaho, because of our electoral politics, often uh, the most interesting races and the decisions are made in the spring primary. Uh, but we still have the November general election ahead of us, but oftentimes it's the primaries that are more competitive. You had it in one of your stories this week, quoting a post on social media from Wayne Hoffman, president of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, predicting that voters may be sending the most conservative house in state history uh, to the legislature next year uh, for the session that would begin in January. Right, and it all comes on the heels of uh, considerable public backlash directed at the Freedom Foundation. Yeah. They had Vandersloot uh, giving money to candidates like Britt Ra Rabel, um, you know, really going after uh, Freedom Foundation aligned candidates, you know, including Brian Zollinger, who did lose. Uh, which, uh, you, know, you know, waged uh, social media and uh, internet campaign against uh, the Freedom Foundation, a lot of it directed at the Freedom Foundation's criticism of Governor Brad Little and the, uh, the stay-at-home order and the, uh, the phased reopening of, of Idaho businesses. To some degree, if this was a referendum on the Idaho Freedom Foundation, uh, you know, <laughs> They came out ahead of where they started. I mean, I think uh, they can look at the House and say that they picked up ground in the House and how that plays out in terms of makeup of committees, how it plays out in terms of leadership elections, way too early to tell. I don't think any way you look at the House and arrive at any conclusion that it's going to be potentially more conservative. Not so much in the Senate, because I think the Senate is kind of more of a stay, uh, stay the course uh, situation. No incumbents lost on Tuesday. Um, Christy Zitto, who's a House member who's been aligned with the Freedom Foundation, she won the nomination uh, for an open Senate seat in District 23. 
she's got an opponent in the fall, but she's in position to potentially move over to the Senate. That would that would be a, a shift to the right in that seat. But Dean Mortimer's seat in the Senate is going to be taken over by a more uh, more moderate of the two candidates on Tuesday, uh, Kevin Cook. Uh, Brent Hill's seat in Rexburg will be taken uh, by uh, Doug Ricks, House member, uh, who was more moderate than the other uh, opponent in that primary. And we can say that Ricks will be there and Cook will be there because they're unopposed in the fall. So really, by and large, I think the Senate is going to be about where it was this year. So, you know, the the tensions that we've seen in past years between the House and the Senate, I don't see that going away anytime soon either. No, uh, and I see the House probably having a lot to say when it gets to town in January. Uh, so it's going to be a fun legislative session. They're always interesting in their own way. Um, but yeah, if uh, a more conservative house is going to be under the state house rotunda in January, it could be really interesting, especially given uh, what we've been through since the legislature adjourned this year, uh, both with the budget and with the overall health pandemic. Um, it's always interesting when you talk about the Idaho legislature, it may be becoming more interesting. We'll, uh, We'll just have to see. Yeah. All right. That was uh, that was a busy week. Uh, I think that was most everything that I wanted to talk to talk about this week. You did mention um, West Ada and the failure of the levy there. I had a little bit of an interesting story later this week um, about parent preferences mm-hmm. uh, in both West Ada and Boise, the state's two largest school districts. Parents, at least in those two large Treasure Valley districts, are hoping. Uh, that the students can go back uh, in the fall for more of a traditional setting. I have results of those surveys. And um, one thing that may be influencing that, parents in both districts not especially happy with the distance learning options and how that played out this spring. Uh, that may be contributing to their desire to have a more traditional return to, the, to school in the fall. But it's kind of interesting. you got to figure, and I know West Ada is really trying to ramp up devices um, throughout the district ahead of next year. But you got to figure West Ada and Boise, probably two of the districts that were somewhat positioned to make a transition to online learning. Um, And obviously parents had some concerns there. So I know that we've talked about what the fall could look like and how that could be different, whether it's a return, whether there are restrictions in place, whether it is more of a blended model, whether there's rolling closures, I think we still don't know. Uh, But parents are hoping that it can be as much like school as possible. That was my takeaway, at least in those two big uh, districts, the two largest districts in the Treasure Valley there. Right. And and I think, though, too, you've got West Ada and Boise and districts all over the state really having to to plan for any number of contingencies, possibilities, you know. I, I think that administrators like uh, like most parents uh, surveyed in, in West Ada and Boise, I think teachers and administrators want to get back to something resembling normal in the fall. They want to get back to what they do best, to what they're most comfortable with, what, what kids are most accustomed to. But, you know, as we've said so many times over the course of this uh, pandemic, nobody really knows what to expect going forward because nobody really knows how the pandemic is going to Kind of play out. No, nobody knows how, you know, what kind of second wave might come in the fall or winter, or what kind of localized 
spread you might have in, in communities in the fall or, or at any point in the school year. And how do those uh, local schools respond to a, a local outbreak? We don't know at this point. And I think districts are waiting on more direction from the State Board of Education. We know that the State Board is looking at uh, guidelines for the fall. We expect to see those in the, in the next few weeks. A lot to sort out, uh, especially at the K-12 level. And it just feels like at this point, we don't know as much about what K-12 might look like, as opposed to, to higher ed, where the three universities have all kind of laid out their hopes and their plans for the fall, again, subject to change and subject to, uh, to modification, uh, depending on what happens uh, on those campuses. But yeah, a lot to sort out in the weeks to come. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I had a pretty interesting interview with a West Ada spokesperson this week who talked about some of the realities that large districts like West Ada could be looking at. West Ada is in a unique position. They serve 40,000 students at the K-12 level. They're the largest district, considerably larger than even Boise. But one thing that the spokesperson talked to me about is if there are social distance guidelines in place, could be looking at a situation where students are going to school every other day uh, because all of a sudden you can't fit 30 kids or 27 kids into a traditional classroom. And so maybe they're going twice a week or every other day. Um, but there's all kinds of questions. Um, and, it, and it really opened my eyes to what school administrators are looking at. But what do you do about passing periods? What do you do about the time between classes? Uh, what do you do about lunch? What do you do about lockers versus carrying backpacks? What do you do about restrooms? Um, what do you do about the time? What did you do about the buses? What do you do about the time right when everyone's in the hallway right before school starts for the day? Mm -hmm. uh, there's just a lot to consider. Um, and so it isn't going to be easy. And I'm not, I, I don't think I ever suggested that it would be easy, but this kind of opened my eyes to it's not just as simple as, okay, we're in stage three or stage four, do the best you can, have some hand washing stations and disinfecting wipes available. It's a lot more complicated for that, at least in big dynamic districts. West Data has a crowding issue in good times. In normal times, uh, those, those classrooms are crowded. And you could plug a lot of other districts into that, uh, that equation. Bonneville has grown year yeah. Twin Falls has grown year in and year out. How do you how do you achieve and maintain social distancing when your classrooms are crowded, when your uh, student population is growing? You know, because that's a physical capacity issue. Yeah. You know, you, know, you can you can hire teachers to handle crowding. Uh, you know, you can use an emergency levy as a lot of districts do to keep staff intact. To, to maybe hire a teacher here or there or to hire a paraprofessional, but you still have to put the students and the faculty someplace. And there's Square only so footage and facilities become an issue. You know, West State has got a crowding issue. I mean, you know, you know it's been kind of a, you know, a challenge for them with kindergarten. And we've written about that in the past uh, when it comes to trying to, you know, get extra help for kids who are struggling with reading. They don't have space uh, to extend the kindergarten day very much. They don't have space to accommodate all day kindergarten. So those crowding issues that we've seen play out in so many other issues, those crowding issues become even more urgent when you're dealing with uh, coronavirus and you're dealing with uh, trying to maintain social distancing when you know, you know the, the times really demand it. 
and parents are going to really demand it. Tough situation. Yeah, it is. And we'll have a lot more about that story, both at the K-12 level and at colleges and universities throughout the summer. It'll be one of the big things that we're looking at. I know next week uh, I'll be continuing to follow uh, what happens with the pandemic and the coronavirus. Uh, may have a press conference from Governor Little uh, to decide whether we move into stage four of the rebounds plan. Going to take a little bit more of a closer look at what happens west next in West Ada. We'll be doing that over the next two weeks. Uh, so look for that at some point in June. Obviously going to be following whether there's any uh, rulings or filings or orders out of the Supreme Court case, uh, Superintendent Ibarra's case that we were talking about at the top of the show, just heard oral arguments today. So I'm going to be busy. You're going to be on vacation, and we may have a guest podcaster on, uh, or at least a guest for a segment next week, still trying to iron out some of those details. But you're going to be taking a little bit of well-deserved time off, and then you'll be back in mid-June. Yeah, I, I got my first haircut in five months last week, and now I'm going to have my first uh, break in, in five months. It, yeah. It's it's been a busy five months, and I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, to, you know, because I expect you all to feel sorry for me. And I don't want you to feel sorry for me. I mean, this has been really busy stuff uh, the past five, really important stuff, uh, covering the legislature and now covering the response to coronavirus. It's been uh, it's been a wild five months. It'll be nice to take a take a little bit of a break, take a little bit of a breather. Um, and get back at it recharged a week from Monday. All right. Sounds good. As always, I really appreciate you joining us on the Extra Credit Podcast every week. We have a lot of fun breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Thanks as always. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week and stay safe.